Welcome to the Nightbare Box Presents The Art of Wargaming. I'm Yaga Malark. Onishiro was not able to make it today, but joining me instead is my friend Thumbs. Hello. And we're going to talk to you today about strategic offense. Uh, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about Thumbs. Uh, Thumbs is a, a fella I know from Doom Belagarth and also from high school, but how long have you been fighting Thumbs? Uh, I started my freshman year of high school, which would have been 2003. I started a few months I started a few months before you did because mm-hmm. uh, I started in the summer and then we became friends in the fall and one day you dropped out of a tree and we're like, hey, buddy, what you doing? And I just kind of looked at you for a moment. And I went, you know, I think you would like this game. See, I'm glad you said that because I tell that story sometimes and people doubt the validity of it. Uh, no, it literally just, dropped out of a tree. A strange it was... man hiding in trees, distributing swords. Uh, oh, wait, uh, wrong story. <laughs> you did give me a sword. But Thumbs, you, uh, you're, uh, you're part of the Gelf, aren't you? Yep. Uh, the Gelfin Empire is a unit Mostly in Idaho and Oregon. Uh, there's a few of us in Colorado, California, and now three of us in Montana. Right on. We're 15, 20 years old, and usually at least one of us is helping run Chaos Wars because it's owned by Dop, who is not a founder, I don't think, but one of the earliest members. And from what I understand, like a lot of units uh, pride themselves on being like a really strong fighting unit or a really strong RP unit. Uh, the Gelf have a have a decently strong field presence, but what you all have on lockdown is your nightlife and your camp life, if I'm uh, not mistaken. We look for people who bring something good to the unit. It doesn't have to be on the field. We have people who are uninvolved in nightlife, but they are on the field constantly kicking butt. Um, Sorry, I just swore at my hand because I did exactly what I told Thumbs not to do, and I bumped the table as I was... Yeah, I, it's a practical demonstration. Uh, Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, anyways, we bring in someone that brings to the unit. So we have people who are really good. We call them responsive elves. They are the good planners. We have the good partiers. We have the good organizers. We have the good fighters. Sure. Uh as long as you bring something into the unit, that's more important to us than, like, I am the strongest fighter in the history of fighting. Well, again, it gives you guys a good mix. Like, uh, long term, it ends up, uh, like I said, I, I had the honor of camping with the Gelf one year when I was uh, being a mercenary for him. I couldn't make it that year because my uh, wisdom teeth exploded. Yeah. And so I hired you to be our mercenary and to be in my spot. And I, I believe I was worth my pay. That's good. Uh, and when I say mercenary, folks, um, I know that we've talked about Belagarth as being a somewhat role-playing game, so it might be easy for you to assume that my character is role-playing a mercenary, but no, I, I am actually a mercenary. Most of my Belagarth career, I have gone to events um, and had other people kind of help me get there and, and either pay for food or pay for booze or whatever while I was there, and the trade-off was I fought for them. So. I paid for your event fee, mm-hmm. and I think we paid for part of your food or something like that that year. Something like that, yeah. You were part of the kitchen, I think. <clears throat> yeah, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so uh, that's that's an actual thing you can do in Belagarth, FYI. I miss doing it. I like. I, I love the Gelf. I'm super happy where I am, but there was something kind of nice about, like, I don't know where I'm going to be this week. Let's kind of flip a coin and see who gives <laughs> me stuff. 
One of the nice things about being a dark angel and being isolated at the moment, I mean, we're trying to grow in the West right now, uh, but one of the nice things about being a dark angel and being isolated is I can, even though I'm a part of an organized unit, I can still mercenary sometimes because I'll just do some research and be like, okay, none of my unit mates are going to be there. I might as well get a free night of drinking out of it. <laughs> if I'm ever going east, that's largely my plan. No, it's not. It's not a bad way to get around. Uh, if if uh, people, are, of course, willing to to do it for you. Um, but one of the other things I want to talk to you about specifically, thumbs, is you have been Stygia's realm leader for how uh, years? almost four years. I am finishing up my term as the president, or my second term as the president, uh, and then I was vice president for two years before that. Uh, and then I wasn't a realm leader, but for God, what was it five years, I ran the DGMA, which was the Dreadgate Mercenary Alliance, which was a unit that Malark and I were both in. Um, and I didn't have any say in like realm policy, but people listened to me for some reason. I never understood why, but they did. It, it's that soothing baritone. <laughs> <laughs> Always helps. Um, so that's that's a long. A long career of, of uh, public service because it's not like uh, it's not like real politicians where you you get like a per diem and a living allowance. You're just doing this out of out of. It is all volunteer work. Yeah. I ran, I ran tourneys at Chaos Wars this year, and I ran the field the year before, like the entire field tourneys event points and stuff, and it was kind of a disaster. But I learned a lot, and that's really what was important. Um, at Chaos Wars for the last two years, uh, I was very determined that this upcoming year... Oops, touch the table. That, I, that this upcoming year was going to be the year I don't do anything, and instead I volunteered to do more stuff. I think uh, Bellagrim are some of the few people I know, the only people I know on the planet, that actually choose to take on more responsibility when they're on vacation. Yeah. Uh, that was actually one of my lessons from the year before, was make sure you take time off even if you're volunteering, even if you're doing stuff, uh, because you will burn out yeah. and you'll stop coming and you'll lose something you love and we'll lose a valuable part of the community. Sure. Uh, and that was, this was the first event, one of the first events I went to with multiple squires. Uh, and I was able, that was like my big lesson for them. I'm like, you guys are all volunteering for a bunch of stuff, but you will take a point of time every day where you don't have to do anything. I, I actually do a similar thing with my apprentices. I, I require them to have at least one hour of field fighting per day of the event. So, I mean, if that's a three-day event and they just want to do three hours on one day, cool. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, I want them to fight at least one titled fighter for every day of the event. Same deal. If they want to get it all out of the way on one day, they can. And then one hour of volunteering for every day of the event, uh, which means that they can kind of space out as they want because I, I know a lot of squires and a lot of apprentices who, like you say, they end up burning out. You know, they, they hit their title or they may not even reach their title and they decide that this uh, game is too much work. And so, mm -hmm. and, and, and this is in no way discouraging volunteerism, in no way discouraging those amazing people that go out of their way to make sure that we all have an amazing event. I'm just saying y'all deserve some downtime too. And if you're not having at least a little bit of fun, um, you're doing yourself a Then disservice. what's the point? You're yeah. going on vacation. Yeah. You're, you're paying to be there. Nobody's paying you to be there. It's cool that you want to do things and help out so that everybody can have a good time. But again, you gotta, everybody's got to have a good time. That's, that's kind of my point with that. Yeah. But despite all of this, you're you're thinking about because your your realm leadership is about to be over, but you're about to take the next step, if I understand correctly. Possibly, um, I decided to run for president of the entire organization, 
uh, because when I decided to do it, no one had actually announced yet. And we were talking about like, no, we really need this. This is, it, it's not the world's biggest job, but it has to happen. We have to have a vice president if we're going to be, or not a vice president. I mean, we need that too, but right, right. Uh, you have to have a president if you're going to be a uh Nonprofit like we are. Sure, sure. There needs to be a head to the board of directors. And, all um, and I was like, well, I'll put my name in there and it will terrify people who know me well enough that more people will volunteer. And a few people volunteered, but I had the the thought that almost gets me into the most trouble in Bellagarth is, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to I'm going to try. Uh, and so I'm trying. And who knows how it'll go. But when well, is when is this coming out? Uh, you know, I honestly don't know. We're still getting uh, uh, through the editor at the moment and, and making sure that, you know, all the different streaming services know that we're not advocating for anything horrible. Uh, we're just talking nerdery. Okay. So uh, not too terribly long, or it could be a bit. I don't know. Okay. I mean, the election <laughs> soon, so it's probably... Decided one way or the other by the time anyone hears this. Very well could be. And I know Hakan is also running for it as well. Uh, um, right? Uh, yep. Hakan is running for it. He um, is a old friend and roommate of you and I. Uh, he and I are actually running on a lot of the same, I guess, platforms. Yeah, sure. Uh, of getting a few more sets, uh, uh, a few more sources of income so we can afford to pay for stuff. Working on helping new realms, units, whatever, start up. Um, I'm, my big kind of dream goal for it would be to set up a little fund that people could apply for to get realm weapons, get loner gear, if they're trying to start up a group. And they like, we have this much stuff. And we're like, all right, here's 50 bucks towards buying supplies to make loner gear, whatever it is. But like, it has to be specifically for that. Well, I imagine that would really help uh, units that are in fair, or realms that are starting in isolated areas actually get started. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot because we are the only realm in Montana. Sure. Uh, and I've wanted to start other realms, but it's hard because we're like, okay, we're a few hundred miles away from you. But if you make all this stuff and you start doing all these things, then you should totally do it too. And we'll see you every <laughs> once in a while. Um, so I've been for the last few years, kind of low key thinking of ways that we could help new groups start. Sure. Cause it would be nice to not be the only realm in 300 miles. Well, I, I'm glad that there's more than one person running on that, on that policy so that uh, hopefully one of you gets it. And, yeah. Uh, Cause that's one of the, the big things I see too. Squire. God, what's his name? I have never met this guy. Uh, he's out East, uh, Squire mud. He's supposed to be a nice guy. Uh, but, not, I, not to undersell him. I just don't no, know I, him. I, so. I, actually, I haven't met him either, but uh, we're all the way here on the West Coast. so Yeah, we're pretty far removed. That uh, great grass sea is actually quite an obstacle. Um, you know, one of the things I noticed in going east at all was when I went to Tennessee, there were units that were highly prominent. Like, everybody knew them on the East Coast. They had been around for a while. They won tournaments. Like, they were big deals that we had never heard of at all on the West Coast. Ravnus is one of those. You ever heard of Ravnus? I've heard the name. I could not tell you literally anything about the unit. Probably I thought it was a person for quite a while. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a really cool unit from down in the southeast. They're extremely numerous, at least when I was out there, and they were really tearing up the field. But nobody ever heard of them. But when you're over there, you know, I was... Everyone heard of them. Everybody had heard of them. But when I was there, I was still a member of the Forsaken, and the Forsaken are fairly well known on the West Coast. But I went to the East Coast, and everybody was like, for who? Is that a... Is that a... 
Is that a boy band? You know? <laughs> uh, Gelf has a little bit of knowledge on the East Coast because we have some crossover with Hellhammer and God Squad. Okay, okay. Uh, because God Squad pulled out of... God Squad were Gelf originally, and then they split to... Right, do their thing. Cousins, I guess. There's a decent amount of crossover between God Squad and Gelf. Sure. Uh, but we're still not not nearly as well-known, like... Any further east than Montana, most people are like, uh, the, the what now? But again, it's it's crazy how how that happens on both sides, though. Because again, there's there's a, a unit that I was a part of out there in the East Vorshin who is making waves and a lot of people know of right now. Again, most people here in the West never heard of them. I only know of them because of you. Yeah. Um, so it, it, this great grass sea is, is definitely... Definitely a thing, um, but hopefully, as a as a, whoever becomes the next president of Belagarth can help to bridge that a little bit. Yeah, it would help if we could get just a few realms in the middle. Is kind of nice. I know there's some there's somebody in Oklahoma. There, I, there's somebody I don't know if she actually practices in Oklahoma, but I know there's a fighter in Oklahoma. Uh, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Wyoming. Uh, if we could get one in Minnesota, that has a few more people than sure. literally anything around there. They also have about like two months of summer. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm not saying it would be easy. I am saying like in the dream world, this would be perfect. <clears throat> um, if we get a few more in Montana, it would help a lot, just because Montana has sizable, if not. Oh, so we're selfish. We're selfish. Oh, we, want, we, we are super want so many more people. We'd love some neighbors. Um, well, right on. Well, good luck to you and good luck to Hakan and to Squire Mud. I think it's Squire Mud. Or Sir Mud. I, I don't want to be disrespectful to, to Mr. Mud. Mud. Um, and uh, yeah, best of luck to all three of you. Um, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, though, I want to go back and correct something from the previous episode. I had mentioned in passing that the massed infantry strategy had worked for the Boer War. Now, anybody who heard this episode is shaking their heads. I apologize. Uh, I meant to say in the early part of the Boer War, uh, this mass infantry strategy worked. It obviously did not win the overall Boer War because South Africa is, I believe, still part of the Commonwealth. So the British won. Spoiler alert. Um, so, with that correction aside, we're going to move right into strategic offense. Um, now, Sun Tzu speaks about this a lot throughout the Art of War, but, uh, but outthinking the enemy is going to kind of be our theme of this episode. Okay. Uh, the idea of um, mind games and knowledge actually playing a, hu- playing a huge part in the way that battle unfolds. Uh, we should admit, before we go farther, that you have done a ton of research for this, and I found out what the topic was about 30 minutes ago. Yeah, uh, Thumbs is doing me a solid filling in at the last minute, so... Not uh, not to like <laughs> get, not to knock you at all, just so if they're like, wow, that Thumbs guy's kind of dumb. That's because I did not think about this at all, so this is all seat of the pants. No, no Thumbs is, is here to make me sound smart, and I'm here to make Thumbs look pretty. Excellent. That, that's why we're here for each other. It's a good balance. It's worked for years. <laughs> But uh, Sun Tzu um, talks a lot throughout this book about the idea of outsmarting the enemy, but we're going we're to speak about that a lot in this episode. And the first section of strategic offense deals a lot with that when he talks about the idea of winning without fighting. Now, in the ancient world, and when we're talking about inter- like an actual battle, there are a lot of different ways to win without fighting. You can starve your enemy out. Uh, you can outmaneuver them politically. Um, you, uh, Trade routes, alliances, marriages, like there there are 10,000 ways to win a, a war without fighting. I was listening to a different podcast, uh, Hardcore History, and they talked about how modern day, when we talk about negotiations, we don't think of them as super, we almost think of them as weak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in the old days, negotiations was one of the most effective ways you could 
win a war. Oh, sure. Because you could just bully people into doing what you wanted. Nobody has to die. Nobody wastes resources. It works out best for, theoretically best for everyone. But in terms of Belagarth or Warhammer 40k, uh, the negotiations have broken down and battle is already upon us. Um, If you're going to try to come into Belagarth without ever fighting... uh, At least onto the Belagarth field without ever (laughs) fighting, it's not going to work. Anywhere else in Belagarth, there's all sorts of... Dagger Dagger here has, has healers, but we don't. Um, but barring that, we have ourselves an extremely violent game that is supposed to be uh, demonstrating what a war is, but without people actually dying. So, uh, the negotiations are broken down, the armies have come to the field, but we're all still trying to be friends. We're all still trying to get together at the end of the, ni- at the, end of the day and drink around the same fire and tell stories and, and be a community. So, when I'm speaking of mind games, I'm not actually talking about things that we're not doing real cool. psyops here. No, we're not doing real psyops. I'm not. I'm not flying around somebody's tent at night, um, trying to keep them awake with <laughs> flashing lights and stuff. Yeah, blasting in sync. <laughs> now, some might that argue might that some of the EDM shows are exactly that. Pub <laughs> um, and dub every year. <clears throat> but uh, short of doing actual dick move like psyop mind games, the ones I'm talking about are one of the similar ones I use is if you see me. Um, off field, you'll notice that I'm a very slight person. I'm six foot three, but I'm only 160 pounds. I'm not heavy. I'm not very muscular. I'm not all that intimidating, to be honest. And so one of the things you I think do, that I know a lot of people terrified of you. Well, I, but I think part of that is the fact that I angle my gear to make me terrifying. I, I go after garb that makes me look like I'm bigger than I am. I wear armor that makes me look like I actually have definition to my shoulders. <laughs> You're using the puffer fish defense. Absolutely. If you ain't got it, you fake it or something like that. Right? <laughs> um, and then I also wear a helm that obscures the majority of my face and gives you this kind of faceless killer idea motif. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to humble brag here for a moment. That helm I made was the first helm I ever made, and it's the one you still wear. It's absolutely beautiful. It is one of my favorite things I've ever made, partly just because you own it so strongly. I put it on a t-shirt once. (laughs) I I know. That's a great t-shirt. I still need to give you that (laughs) t-shirt. You do. I have a copy. Um, But yeah, so these are the kind of ideas I'm saying about mind games. and So for me, feeling that this is also a mind game for me, right? Because like you say, other people might see me in a certain way or might be have this perception of me. That doesn't matter. If I don't think that I'm scary, if I don't think that I'm somebody to be intimidated by, I'm not going to walk that way or swing that way on the field. But if I've already been playing mind games on myself and I've got myself beefed up in my head to be this big mindless killing machine that is coming for you, well then, the mind game isn't just working on my opponent to demoralize them and maybe make them a little bit more sloppy in their fighting, but it's working on me to build me up and to put me into more of a killing mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it's kind of the same idea of like if you get pretty before you go out on a night out. I know before I go out, I, I'll really primp myself. I actually comb my hair back, do nice clean, crisp edges to my facial hair. Like you, you, you pretty yourself up, and it makes you f- feel good. You know, the, the kind of '80s capitalist equivalent was uh, dress for the job you want. Yes, 
Yes, and in this particular case, I want to be a mindless psychotic killer. So <laughs> you dress for the job. For as long as I've known you, that's been uh, your dream. You know, if I wasn't a moralist, we might pursue this as a more serious <laughs> profession. Um, so, so the mind games start with kind of that idea. How do you get into the head of your enemy? Uh, eye contact is often a really good way to use this too. I notice a lot of fighters on the field will just use eye contact and a static facial expression can get into the heads of an inexperienced fighter. I have stopped an entire part of a line at a big event. Mm-hmm. And I am, I'm not bad. I'm a decent fighter, but I am not top of the line, top of the meta at all by any shot. Uh, but I stood there with my big shield and my big club and I gave him a cocky look and there was no one within like 15 feet of me. And the entire line stopped because they were like, well, I don't know that guy, but he sure looks like he knows what he's doing. And yeah, and that's the attitude, though. Like, why take the chance? You know, this one person has strode forward and confidently challenged five warriors. He's got to have the ability to back it up. We didn't. We did not. Neither, neither thumbs or I have that ability. But, but even being able to stop that line for just a second or a couple of seconds gives the rest of your teammates to move into a position where you might not actually have to put or back up your bark. Uh, with the smaller bite that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that is inevitably coming. So so that that's a huge part of the mind games too. Um, another part of the mind games is the, uh, like you were saying, there's a, a, there's a reputation that precedes you. You know, a lot of people who, who hear, I, I know I talk about the elite blood falcons a lot on this show, but they're a really good example for a lot of different things. And their name carries something with it. Some people like them, some people don't like them, you know, but everybody knows when the elite blood falcons take the field, there's somebody to pay attention to. Yeah, you can like them, you can dislike them, you can't pretend they don't exist. Right, right. Uh, This can actually backfire on you, though, too. True. uh, At Chaos Wars this year, in one of the days I I was out, they were having trouble because they were the biggest unit, Mm. not by a ton, but they were the biggest unit, and they were... Drawing aggro. Good, they were good enough that everyone knew that if we fought each other, the elite Blood Falcons would swing out behind this wall that they were hanging out behind mm-hmm. and wreck us. So everyone punched the elite Blood Falcons, and then if we survived, we punched each other from there. So yeah, that, as, that the reputation precedes you, and if you can use that to your advantage, it works. But also, your enemies might take you seriously. Yeah, and I'm sure it was really <laughs> frustrating for them, but it was suicide to do literally anything else. Oh, sure. So. Sure. Um, and that's and that's that's something else we're going to talk about a little bit later on when we're talking about numbers. Um, but yeah, so mind games is just something way little tiny tweaks, little tiny adjustments that you can do to your appearance, to your to your behavior, to your manner of speech that can kind of mess with your opponent and throw them a tiny bit off their game. Again, I'm not advocating trash talking. I'm not advocating discrimination of any kind or belittling or anything along those lines. We're still a civil game and we still need to be able to sit down and be a community after the fight is done. But that being said, I'm not going to say I don't eyeball people. No. If I ever put someone in the dirt, though, after the fight, I'll go, like, check up on them, help them get up or something. Or, like, I try to most fights in between the during the reset point to say something nice to the one of the other people on one of the other teams mm-hmm. so it cuz it just helps build that reputation of like okay this isn't personal right it, they're not going to stop but they're it, it's a respect thing sure. not like a uh, i'm being a bully thing right right there's a very fine distinction that needs to be met um, and this, this same idea goes to outthinking your enemy. Obviously, if you're out, we're trying to outthink your enemy, 
I don't mean going so far to the edge of the rules that you're basically cheating. I don't mean uh, finding the, the biggest cheese that you can possibly find and, and going extreme with that because that's not actually outthinking the enemy. That's just that's being, breaking the game. That's just breaking the game. I mean, outthinking the enemy is to say, for instance, Turkey Feathers, mm-hmm. one of the best fighters on our field. Yeah. Um, probably the best fighter on our field uh, at a fairly consistent basis. He's the fighter to literally every new person I have to eventually like put my hand on their shoulder and go, don't worry, we all lose to him like that. You get used to it. <laughs> and but, then they start winning eventually. They feel like gods. Sure. But, like, but, but uh, with Turkey Feathers, one of the ways that I warm up anymore is that I will just watch him fight. And I'm, I'll be sitting there going, all right, which foot is Turkey favoring today? Is he for, is he doing flourishes? Is he doing a bunch of feints? Is he just being uh, short and direct? I try to gauge you know, his mindset and where he's coming from so that when I face him, I'm not doing it cold. I already know I'm going against somebody who is very much a threat, who is very much probably going to kill me. So I need to be on mentally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and one of the good ways that I can do that is go, okay, these are, this is what I can kind of expect. You know, I, I know that, oh, he's, he's, uh, it, it, the analysis is there. And, yeah. and so that, that can be a portion of outthinking the enemy. Another idea of outthinking the enemy is knowing the general tactic of a unit. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we were talking about earlier was the early skirmishes between the Urukai and the DGMA here in Stygia. And uh, when we were, um, we would outthink them because they fought in a very specific way. Uh, they enjoyed facing the enemy head on and, and crushing them. They were the Urukai. They wanted to be a horde <laughs> yeah. that ran down people, and they were they were good at it. And they did it. They, they did it exceptionally well. They're still um, good at it when they're on their point. Yes. Like, I, I, they're not I, I, as I'm big not. anymore. That's we're, we're making them sound like they're a thing of the past, and that's, no, they, that's I, not what we're doing. They're still around. Doing. They still do their thing, but this was something we had noticed about them. And so as the DGMA, we became far less focused on line fighting because, let's be honest, we couldn't hold a candle to them. They we had, never liked it. They, we, they had the big boys. They had Teddy. They had Reaper. I mean, you guys probably don't know these people, but these, these were fellas that would be not out of place in an actual riot squad. Um, Reaper, I think, had actual riot shield training. Now that you say that, I think he did. Um, that was at least the rumor. I haven't talked to the guy in probably a You know, a I decade, took a shield so. check from him to the chest. I believe it. <laughs> um, but the Urukai, again, they were trained in that way. They were very direct. They were very good at destroying what was directly in front of them. And so us not being able to really face a front-on assault to them uh, tried to outthink them. And, and we, we did this in a couple of ways. The, the first one that comes to mind was we would often use other units, like you were saying with the EBF, to wear them down. If we ourselves could not hope to take on the Urukai, we could maneuver them into fighting other units and then maybe losing a player here, maybe losing a player here there, until the ground was a bit more equal when we ended up going against them. The, the term we used a lot was herding sheep. Which yeah. is really rude, and in retrospect, uh, sorry. A, a little derogatory, yeah. I was 21, 21-year-olds. <laughs> um, I'm so smart. I'm 21. <laughs> but uh, the idea of if we can force a, any kind of conflict against them, we can weaken them even just a little bit. If we can even just drop some shields, that gives us a point that we can punch. Sure. And we weren't bad at the punch, it was just the sustained punch that we could not manage. Yeah, we didn't have, we didn't have the same just manpower and, and punching power that they did. Uh, and and the other way to do this is to not engage them where they're strong. To to do something we've talked about before, which is wolf packing. And even if you're a smaller unit, you can engage the larger unit 
two on one in Gelf your favor. Love wolf packing. It was sort of the uh, the dark angel. Oh, I it's think. like we have a had a thing. Yeah, yeah. Evolution of the form, as it were. <laughs> um, but the wolf packing is, you know, you're in a disparate formation, and then when one of your teammates engages somebody, somebody else steps in immediately and, and changes it from a one-on-one fight in that small microcosm to a two-on-one fight. Especially and, if you can do it from two angles. Sure, yeah. They, they suddenly just, they will be open somewhere. Right. An opportunity will arise. If you can hit them at, at a larger than 90 degrees, I would say. Mm. If, you're, if you're hitting them at larger than a right angle... Um, you're, you're definitely opening them up. Uh, like we were talking about in the last episode with the idea of the kill pocket, where, where there's no wrong way to throw a shot into a kill pocket because all of them have the potential to be lethal. It's the same idea with wolf packing. If you can hit them at a wider angle, that's more effort that they have to do defending themselves with a shield. The shield isn't quite as useful as a static blocking implement anymore, mm-hmm. um, and it splits their attention, which is huge. You can often kill somebody without, without having them see you at all, and there's a difference between being a chronic backstabber and a wolf packer, and the difference is when you are one, you like to call yourself a wolf packer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and with a wolf pack, you still will sometimes end up really facing sure. off on person. You're you're using tactics as opposed to hiding, right? And again, with my body presence, I like to be the the anvil. I don't hide well. I'm a 250 pound man. Me neither. You know, turkeys are same size, but he manages to hide. But we 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 draw attention. We draw aggro, and so I I, I wear bright colors. I have no secrets about why I draw. I wear attention. black colors, and that seems to freak people out because it's this big. But dark it, you told me you wanted to look like a supervillain, so I made you look like a supervillain. Thank you. You succeeded. Um, I draw aggro, and it's great. Um, <laughs> so this is also about thinking the enemy, uh, being able to to maneuver in such a way. That, that gives you an advantageous position out of a disadvantageous one. Um, and then you had had an example about thinking the enemy, which involves patience, I believe, when you were talking about hanging back a little bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, I am very rarely on the front line in the very start, or if I am, I will hang back a little bit while the line pushes forward, mm-hmm. and then I'll just fill whatever gap is the most open. Um, so, like, as I mentioned before, if there was no one in a 15-foot area and I just came out there and stood and looked aggressive and stopped an entire line, mm-hmm. uh, filling that gap is just being aware of your own weaknesses. Uh, I picked it up from Vallis. Right. He was very much like, oh, no, you were going to stand with me and because we keep getting broken right here. This exact spot every the last three fights. Vallis was the war master who gave me my chain, and he's the one that I learned the stare down the line technique from as well. Vallis is daddy. He's dad. He's boss. Uh, if he's... you're listening, Vallis, we love you. We miss you. <laughs> we try to tell him often. <laughs> someone, uh, someone called me Vallis recently. They were like, "Oh, you're the new Vallis," and I was like, "You have no idea. That is the nicest thing anyone also has blasphemy. ever said to me." That's also blasphemy. He's I don't here. disagree. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so even the, like the, you acted as a reserve force in a normal, if you're thinking about it as a really large army, keeping a force back in order to fill those gaps or in order to, to deal with a flanker that you didn't anticipate, that's just, that's like military 101. Mm-hmm. Do you see a lot of forces doing that though? Do you see people having people back in reserve? You know, it's hard to say because so much of my experience is Stygia. Sure. So, so much of my experience is the same kind of 40 people all told. Right, right. Um... So we, a lot of us have a lot of the similar tricks, but sure. out of, out of town, I see it a little less often. Okay. Um, at least I think, um, uh, 
because at events, and admittedly at events, a lot of times you're not working with people you're used to working with. Right. So it, it's not as cohesive as it generally would be. Mm-hmm. But I'll see a lot more of like, well, that hole keeps being open. It's been open the last four fights. Mm-hmm. I should maybe fill that hole. Mm-hmm. Uh it, it's kind of the nice thing of tactics on a game like this where you get up and do it again afterwards as opposed to you dead. Right. Is it you, you don't have to have that like, well, I figured out this tactic immediately. You can be like, okay, this isn't working. Right. Let, let's try it here. A little redirection. Yeah, it's not like if you screw it up the first time, you don't get a second time. Yeah. Like in real I, war. There's so many second times. Um, and, and the other thing that I think also plays into this idea of hanging back a little bit Command and control is another thing that somebody hanging back can absolutely do. And as I'm doing more and more archery because of this nerve crap I got going on, um, I'm finding myself filling in this this command and control more. A a little bit of backstory on this. In high school, I was a drum major. So I did a lot of hollering at people to get them to follow orders in a simple way to do things. Uh, After I graduated from high school, I went into the Army. And during basic training, I was uh, something called the student first sergeant for the entire cycle. That in of itself is fairly uncommon because it's a very high stress position. It goes God, drill sergeants, you. And so that's a lot of responsibility, uh, especially because you're also in basic training at the same time. But I loved it because it meant I got to holler at people and and, kind of direct them around. A slight megalomaniac streak. Um, Past tense, I'm sure. Of course. Of course, I'm a totally enlightened being now. Um, <laughs> uh, Nirvana shines out of my <laughs> water comes out of my nose. So, I'm just you know. gonna try not to swear on this one. I told you. I'm not doing to better swear. than you, you so far. So that good. is unusual. You did so good. No, I swore first on the first one. I swore first on the second. I keep telling people not to swear because I want to do it first. Apparently. <laughs> um, but anyways, so so uh, when I was in basic training. Um, uh, I learned all these things. I, I like calling out orders. And, and honestly, one of the things I notice in Belagarth is once the fighting actually starts, when, once everybody's, you know, tucked in and the blows start going, everybody kind of gets blinders. Nobody's necessarily paying attention to where the numbers are strong or the numbers are weak or where there might be an opportunity 50 yards downfield because they're focused on the fight right in front of them, right? They, yeah. they, they've got, they got the task at hand that they're definitely more focused on than everything else. So having somebody who's stepped back a little bit, like an archer or somebody who has taken it upon themselves to do this, um, they're able to look and say, oh my gosh, we got more numbers than them right here. And if we crush this part of the opposing line, we can get a split all the way down and wrap this right up. And all it takes at that time is somebody behind going, get into them, boys. And that's me. It's important to consider how you go about it, though. Uh, you can communicate well, or there there are some people that just yell, "Push, push," and it doesn't actually. No one knows who they are. There's no encouragement for them to listen. They're just screaming, "Push, push! Why aren't you pushing?" And it's not helpful. No, I usually scream out something like, "We got the numbers. Pour it into them." Positive reinforcements, some simple but like specific instruction, and if it, uh, if you can. Do it in a way that they still have their own room to do something. If you just tell them to run, right. people are like, oh, God, I have to run. And it's all they can think about. Right. But, like, in my case, when I'm doing this, I'm like, oh, hey, uh, uh, Alistair, we're getting stomped over there. Can you hang out with Pug? And 
help work on this. And I have given them, let's fill this gap, mm-hmm. but still given them the room to do it themselves as opposed to being like, I need you here. I need you doing this. No, you, you, you hit on a very, very good uh, point in, in, in any sort of military instruction, which is simplicity. K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid, was something we said a lot in the military. And, and the whole reason for that is when things are moving fast, when, um, when, when people are, quote-unquote, dying all around you, when the proverbial poop has hit the proverbial fan, see, I caught myself well there, um, it's hard. It can be hard to, to understand even what somebody's saying from behind you if you're trying to issue this long, drawn-out statement. Something like, pour it into them, what eyes right, um, move, move, move. These are things that anybody can really understand because you can say them repetitively. Coming in on the left. Coming in on the left. Uh, short, simple, sweet. Uh, stuff that people, we, it's the same thing with when people are picking their names. Sometimes people come in and they're like, I want to be Baron Bahamalama Shingity Bang Bang Fergity Walk Walk. And it's we like, had a guy just this week <laughs> that they finally picked their name and we we're all really excited. And he's like, it's lit a drama or something like that and like there's some silence and he goes it's elvish and we go we're all gonna call you lid yep because you can say that lid is a good name it works you can have your full cool one Mm -hmm. but don't pick this name unless you know that it will never once be lit a drama mess behind you it's lid behind oh yeah no nobody ever says my full name nobody ever says yaga malark look behind you it's either yaga or Malark, like yeah. there, there's I, always one of the two. And technically, Sir Thyadric Thumbs. No one has ever once called me Thyadric Thumbs. Because by the time they got through it, you'd be dead. Whoops. So that's that's another part about thinking the enemy, having somebody behind doing command and control. Uh, another huge part that we also just touched on was having a, a tiny bit of a plan before going in. Again, uh, any specific plan isn't probably going to work, but an idea of saying, hey, shieldman, I want you to go stand with that archer and make sure they stay alive to kill people. That's a an open-ended plan that they are free to carry out however they see fit, but that accomplishes a very, very critical task. Yeah. So, uh, we're going to touch more on that a little bit later when we start talking about outthinking the paradigm. But uh, this whole winning without fighting section in the the book, The Art of War, finishes with Sun Tzu talking about avoiding a protracted siege. Uh, In in Belagarth and Warhammer 40k, I know I haven't talked too much about 40k today. I'm sorry for the guys who are listening for that. I don't play, so I would not be able to... Add. You know, before we talk about the battle that we have selected today, I'm going to talk about the battle I had with my orcs, just for the 40k players. But uh, this avoiding a protracted siege, obvi- most times in 40k you're not doing actual siege warfare, most times in Belagarth you're not doing actual siege warfare, but the analogy can stretch to apply to your opponent's heavily fortified zones. So if you're looking across the field and you see a spot where all of your team, the enemy team's best shieldmen are concentrated, yeah, that's going to be a slog. It doesn't matter if you think you can get through it. It's going to be a slog. So trying to hit that straight on and having that be your main strategy isn't necessarily the best idea because while you're slogging, they could potentially do some uh, some flanking or do something tricky to, to get behind you. So it's on you to do that instead. If you're going to do that, it, you better have the... Oh, God, who was it? The Civil War Big General Grant? Uh, there were a lot of big generals in the Civil War. You have to be more specific. The one that won by being in the north and being like, hey, I'm just going to throw 100,000 troops at you. And yes, Grant, Grant was the one who, who applied the theory of attrition to the Civil War. 
Yeah, that's you better be able to have grant numbers yes. if you're going to punch a heavily fortified area straight on. Uh, translation, Imperial Guard numbers. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that illustrates the points. Why? And we already talked about this last time. Don't attack your opponent where they're strong. Attack them where they're weak. And feign strength where you are strong, or feign strength where you are weak in order to distract them. This is the whole idea of, of winning without fighting or winning before fighting, which is more applicable to what we're kind of talking about here. And all that, the the fighting without winning, or... or <laughs> fighting without win- Oh, I'm really good at that. We that could do a whole episode. Exact opposite of what this podcast is supposed to be about. <laughs> um, uh, but, but, but winning without fighting, that's more of an abstract idea. Uh, in the next section of the Art of War, Sun Tzu moves into talking about specific number ratios and what to do in those circumstances. And the, and the same applies for the real battlefield as it does for Belagarth and for Warhammer 40k. Uh, because Sun Tzu says that if you have them outnumbered 10 to 1, surround them. The idea here is that you're not sacrificing more life than you need to. If you're trying to engage them on a front, like a, an even front, they could might be able to maneuver in such a way to inflict equitable losses upon you, which you don't want, ever. It's like we were saying earlier about hitting from two different angles. If you right. can hit from four different angles, that's even better. That's even better. Um, one of the practices... Now, you're a, you're a knight, so I'm going to poke fun at you a little bit here for a second. One of the practices <sighs> of knights in Belagarth is when a fight is getting down toward the end and there's not that many people left on a side, if one of them happens to be a knight, the other knights and squires will line up and fight them one-on-one. No, no. Some will. Some will. Uh, I'll do my best to hit them in the back while they're fighting someone else. Warmasters and certain wise knights um, (laughs) will hit them in the back while they're fighting someone else because this idea of fighting anybody on even terms is is exactly against the art of war. You never want it to be on even terms. You never want to pick a fair fight. My squires laugh at me because every time they hear the words knightly virtues, they can hear me rolling my eyes. They can hear it. Like, not just see it, hear it. Scratching the top of your eyelids. That's what that sound was supposed to be. It wasn't me dragging my cat across a washboard, I promise. Notice how he's been very quiet this episode. Huh? The draconic policies are working. <laughs> Beatings will continue until morale approves. No, he's locked in his room. Um, but yeah, so so if, if you've got the numbers, use the numbers, is what Sun Tzu is saying here. If you're out, I got him outnumbered 10 to 1, take your time, surround him and attack. Same thing in, in, Bella, in, in Warhammer 40k. A lot of time, and I have this problem, because I play orcs. That's my one big melee army, is that I play orcs. And a lot of times, I like to try to just get dug in with some Primaris Marines or with some Terminators, and it never goes well for me, because orcs are supposed to be number-based... They're a swarm. They're a swarm. They're a horde. Specifically speaking, they're a horde-based army, and so their whole point is to be able to overwhelm you with numbers. And so if I'm engaging my marine opponent without having first consolidated my numbers and gotten them to such a point that I can just sheerly overwhelm my opponent, I'm not playing them correctly. It's the same thing in this particular case. Mm -hmm. At a 5 to 1, he says simply just attack, which is to say... Press your advantage, move swiftly, and move in such a way that you are able to capitalize on whatever advantage speed might entail. Because the issue I find is that even though you have an advantage, that can turn into hubris, and hubris can be exploited. So that even if you have a 5 to 1 advantage, if your opponent knows how to play you right, and knows how to play those, uh, those numbers right, any sort of slowness is going to be capitalized on, or at least it's wise to assume it will be. So... 
again, move quickly, do away with this outdated concept of knightly virtue, and, and just kill the opponent. Do you disagree, Sir No, Thomas? not at all. <laughs> People are like, you can't backstab me, I'm a knight. I'm like, well, you should have known better then. You shouldn't have left your back open, yeah. Um, all right, so the, the third scenario he talks about is the two-on-one. And, and what he says in the book is to split your enemy. And the actual translation of the word that they use for split is up for... Uh, debate as to what he actually means, because even as Thumbs and I were kind of talking about this before the episode, we came up with two different versions of the split in our minds. For me, uh, the 2v1 is you hit your enemy hard, like in the center, and you cause their forces to split, thereby giving you more numeric advantage one way or the other. But Thumbs had a different way of interpreting this passage. The pincer. Split your group into two, maybe three if you have enough, but two generally. One on the left, one on the right, punch. It's a pretty time-honored tradition. The hammer, the anvil, the wolf, the crow, the left, the right. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's it, it, it's easier than it sounds, and it's also far more effective than it sounds, especially, again, if you've got a two-to-one advantage, because then even if your opponent decides to really strongly go one direction or the other, you at least are even in that direction and not at a numeric disadvantage, which is what you're always trying to avoid in any sort of combat situation. Um, And speaking of which, the next section he talks about uh, is equal combat. And this is where you're going to have most Warhammer 40Ks take place with the equal, because even if you don't necessarily have the same numbers, the points add up to everybody being basically even. In Belagarth, we try to balance the teams. Same uh, skill level, roughly. Yeah, same skill level. There's even games like Stand and Deliver, where uh, players who are winning, or like you'll be able to trade players back and forth and balance out the teams naturally. So this is actually where we often find ourselves in a neutral which is to say at the beginning of the game, in either Belagarth or Warhammer 40k. And here, Sun Tzu tells us to engage. And he doesn't really give a whole lot of detail in this particular section, because I think the whole rest of the book (laughs) is kind of what is supposed to kind of take place Mm -hmm. in this. But let's kind of extrapolate on it a little bit. If you've got these even sides, what are some tactics that you have noticed working consistently uh, when you've got even numbers? And even skill level there about. Uh, I mean, as I said, I really can't stand the line line grind. Uh, it's not a reliable way of winning as far as I'm concerned, unless you train specifically for it, and we've never cared for it. Oktoberfest would be a very, very strange event for you. I want to try it really <laughs> bad, I'm not going to lie. Oktoberfest is the Eastern event that sounds really tempting. It's coming up here soon, too. I am not going this year. I, I can't uh, <laughs> either, but it's one of my absolute favorites. I love Okfest. It's one of the ones where you get multiple hundreds of people on the field at the same time. It is amazing. Uh, but... The one thing you can do if you do get stuck in that is what we dubbed the Stygia Corner because it was like four Stygians doing it at an event. Um, But again, it's hitting them at slightly two different angles because I will love that forever. The line goes, the line goes, and then either the left side or the right side pushes around them a little bit. And then if you can make one part of the line crumble, you can just walk down the other direction. It's like dominoes at that point. Uh, Because for everyone you kill, you suddenly have one more person that's able to follow up with you. Mm. Well, that's some mathematic beauty right there. My admech brain absolutely adores that. Um, now, why do you think that people didn't get wise to it? You said that this worked for basically the entire event, right? Um, it kind of depends on how much you're used to it. Because mm-hmm. it's 
punching open the side a little bit to get skirmishers in is really what it is. Right. So for a place like Stygia that's really skirmisher heavy, we were like, oh, wait, they're they're going to come around. But if people are used to the line grind, they're just going to punch against each other and just not... It, it takes them longer to figure it out. So for you, uh, gaining advantage in an even situation is about, again, applying those numbers in a specific way. Like you said, you stacked up on the one side uh, and then use that momentum to roll down the length of the line. Yeah. Um, effectively... Changing the numbers, even though the numbers were technically normal, you had a large numeric advantage in whatever five by five square you guys were fighting in. Mm-hmm. Historically, in and out of Bell, like there's all sorts of stories of Alexander the Great who had roughly the same sides, but if he could punch a hole somewhere, they could split and break it. Sure. <clears throat> well, I, and that's I mean that's that's a solid concept that has been touched upon all throughout military history. That's You've just got, basically cavalry tactics. It's it like all it is. Comes back around with every technological innovation too. Napoleon came up with the idea of bombarding with cannons one section of the line of your opponent's line and causing a catastrophic break there and then pushing it really hard with your forces. It's the same idea, new technology. Mm-hmm. This thing works in uh, and Bell and 40K as well if you've got a lot of archers or if you've got a lot of uh, long-range Honor Gurdun crawlers in my particular case. Um, it's, it's nice to be able to punch that hole and then your opponent either has to do one of two things. They either have to spend some time fixing that hole and arresting their field mobility in doing so or they neglect to fix that hole and leave themselves exposed to that being exploited upon. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, anytime you've got even numbers, again, the whole point of this podcast, the whole point of war in general, and if you read Sun Tzu's book, if you read Miyamaru Mizashi's book, The Book of Five Rings, uh, if you read Niccolo Machiavelli's Art of War, one of my absolute favorite works, undervalued book. I haven't um, read it. I have the audio book. It's on my list. It's like you would expect. They say never, ever, ever engage in a fair fight. So the next scenario that Sun Tzu talks about is when you're slightly outnumbered. He doesn't give an exact numeric ratio here, but you can imagine that it's either that 1 to 2 or 1 to 5 idea that you're slightly outnumbered. And and in this particular case, he says, be careful and evade your enemy's advances. Evade your enemy's advances. So that's to say that when your enemy is pushing out really strong, do not sit there and let yourself be engaged at that point because... All the other thing he has to do is hit you there, fix you there, and then move around the sides because, again, they've got numbers. Um, Nomadic horse archers did it for literally thousands of years. Uh, the barbarians of Rome were eventually beaten by the Goths and the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the New Wave Goths. No, not those guys. Uh, but, <laughs> but all of them coming in and doing a similar idea, this hit-and-run tactic. Uh, we were talking about a little bit earlier when we were talking about the Urukai and the DGMA, how when we first started out, we were numerically small and also had less of the veterans on the field. So we didn't necessarily have a numbers or a skill advantage at the time. And so what we had to do was maneuver our enemies against one another and choose to engage our enemy when he when they were not fully acquitted to do so. Yeah. You know, when, when they were busy looking for arrows or when they were distracted with something else, those are the moments to engage because, again, you're not looking for a fair fight. Uh, you, you can lose a fair fight. 
Um, you always want to put the numbers in your advantage. It's the same thing in Warhammer 40k. Anytime you're building an army or anytime you're you're playing a match, you're trying to do so in such a way that capitalizes on what that army is trying to do. Again, with Admech, if you're not playing a long-range shooting game, you should probably switch to a different army because that's what we're set up to do. I mean, we have other th elements to the army that can be um, used, like the Castellan robots being able to go in and punch and some of the other nice melee units uh, having their niche. But overall, you got to use it what it's for. So with the DGMA, we weren't a front-fighting force, we weren't this line-line thing, and so we developed these um, more backhanded, more uh, uh, what we call the, the, the crazy mountain mine, uh, mm -hmm. skirmisher style. This still kind of exists here today. Um, <clears throat> and this last one, this isn't really an option for us all that much uh, in, in Bell or in 40K, but when you are heavily outnumbered, and this is to say probably the 1 to 10 uh, kind of category, Sun Tzu says just withdraw. Just, just don't even... Don't even fight. And sometimes you can do this on the Belagarth field. I know that there's been times, especially as an archer, where I look around and I'm like, all right, it's me, uh, a, a handful of ragtag injured fighters, and a whole lot of enemy who are looking to beat me down because I've been shooting their friends in the face for the past 15 minutes. Um, hand on the head. I am dead. I just withdrawed. Goodbye. <laughs> Generally, the only time you're going to be this outnumbered is if you go to an event where you don't have either unit members or realm members with you. Right. If it's pretty much just you and you don't know anyone else, you're like, well... And normally, you wouldn't be able to expect a victory out of a situation like this, but occasionally, a miracle does strike. And anybody who knows the name Toto will know that one man can make a difference on the field. This is a man who has won a unit battle by himself at Chaos Wars. You've almost done that, haven't you? Uh, not nearly with as much style. Oh, fair <laughs> but, uh, but he does it consistently. Here on the, on the Stygian field, he became well-known for it. Everybody was trying to recruit this guy, and he was the master at being able to win with just his one dude. And the way he does it, I'm going to out some of your secrets here, Toto, so you can come beat me up if you like. But it's in his body stance. He's a big guy, right? If you've never you've met Toto, you know his arms are about as big around as your head. So it's not like he's he's not noticeable. But what he does is if he's, if he's like the lay on is called, he'll just stand there with his sword down kind of by his side and he's got his shield in a, kind of a resting position. He's not meeting anybody's eye. He's not advancing toward anybody. He's not really running away from anybody either. He just is sort of there. And then he just sort of fades from your perception. And then at the end, when you think that you've won and you've tidied up the field, you suddenly turn around and there's Toto. Uh, Suratan in, I think he's in Wrath, uh, Eton, Eton yep, does yep. that <clears throat> too. I was, it was a lot of fun when I was running the field at Chaos because I was watching... I got to watch people fight that I don't usually get to watch fight because sure. I was heralding all the time. Right. Uh, and he would he would not even be holding his shield. He would just have it leaning in front of him, like against his legs. And the fight would go on, and I'd hear people be like, oh, that's a ton. He's cool. And then he sometimes would kill some of them and then just, like, walk away again. And people would let him. Uh, and it was entirely just, I am non-aggressive. And you're like, oh, I just don't want to deal with that. Right. Well, again, he's not aggressive. He's not a threat that you have to deal with immediately because he's not aggressive. He's not running away, so it's it's it doesn't trigger that instinct to chase. It's, they're just sort of there, 
And if they have a reputation, like you say, for being somebody who's not a huge backstabber and is going to let you pass by without incident, and they're a good fighter to begin with, why take the chance? Take, do the math. It's not worth it. Right. I mean, even if you just lose a couple of limbs from people, those are limbs that could have been used to fight somebody else. So, again, in the heavily outnumbered section, it is not common to uh, end up winning, but in the rare cases of Eton and Toto, uh, some people have turned it into a bit of an art form. Generally, um, you want, if it's just you versus everyone else, then you're done. Right. But if it's you versus them versus them versus them, you have you have a chance. Right. You can absolutely play that to your advantage. And again, when you have multiple teams on the field, when it's not just two teams, it works a lot better because you've got a lot more dynamics going on. There's, there's more push and pull, uh, a lot more targets to be aware of in those particular cases. Um, but yeah, so we're going to move on from the subject of numbers, which is a little dry, uh, to something that's a bit more... Uh, esoteric again, and these are the five keys to victory. So there's five keys that he's talking about. We're going to kind of go through them and talk about what they mean for Bell and for Warhammer 40k, if they apply. Uh, The first one is knowing when to fight and when not to fight. And this kind of seems self-explanatory, but everything else we've been kind of talking about in this episode lends toward this idea, Mm -hmm. right? And, And then the sort of idea that if you've got different numeric situations, you're going to fight at different times in different places than if you've got a better or a worse numeric situation. With the chaos field, when I was talking about earlier, uh, we could fight God Squad, or we could fight EBF together and then deal with each other. It was right. a definite when to fight, when not to fight. Absolutely. So, and and that's again, uh, you know, one of those large field, especially unit battles, where you've got multiple units out there. If you're one of the first units into the fray, you're depleting your numbers right off the bat. So, unless you're going into somebody who you know you're going to be able to take really easily, like a ten to one kind of situation, it's it's probably best to wait a second and see how the field evolves and see where the best place to maneuver is going to be. Because again, getting caught out in the open or getting caught in the middle, God forbid. Uh, it is the worst place to be. So knowing when to fight and when not to fight is absolutely uh, important in Belagarth. And it's it's the same thing in Warhammer 40k. Like I was saying earlier, if I've got three squads of boys running at one squad of Space Marines, is it smarter for me to hit that squad with uh, the, the Marines with just one squad or to wait until I've got all three squads to bring to bear? Well, it depends on the situation. It depends if I've got cover. Um, it depends if the Marines are distracted by something else. Um, there's a lot of situa- There's a lot of factors that kind of come into play there. So that needs to be read every single time. There's no hard and fast rule for any of this. It's all just getting in the habit of thinking about it. Um, and, that, and that helps you know when to fight and when not to. Um, the next part of this is what we were just talking about, knowing what to do with superior forces and with inferior forces. Mm-hmm. So again, if you've got the numbers, knowing how to make those count and not lose too many people and deplete your actual advantage. And But if you've got less people, knowing how to maneuver those in such a way that you can place yourself in an advantageous situation. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's not enough. I'm sorry, I don't have a ton to add here. Yes, this makes sense. This part is a a lot of just a recap of a lot of the things we've talked about. Um, This next part is is kind of new as to what we've been talking about today. Holding officers and men, or soldiers, in united purpose. Uh, so obviously, in, the, in terms of a, of a real army, knowing why you're fighting is a big deal. If you're just marching into somebody else's country and killing people and you, and you don't know why, 
most people aren't inclined to do that. No. Uh, most people are peaceful and will never kill anybody in their entire life. You have to have a reason to kill somebody. So if you're told that they're a barbarian, if you're told that they're an infidel, if you're told that, hell, if you just want their land. Yeah, like, we, they have stuff we want, <laughs> as actually been the main reason for large parts of history. Uh, most of most of war has been resource-based. <laughs> uh, even though, even like the Crusades. It's funny if you look back at the Crusades and it's like, well, the re- Crusades were a religious war. And it's like, well, they actually weren't. It was a political war because the European kingdoms were about to be at each other's throats again. The papacy was like, we can't take another massive European war. Oh, look, brown people. Oh, God. And that, I mean, that's just super basic, accurate, but that's been like the, 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 the anthem of the West for the last like 500 years at this point, <laughs> thousand maybe. Um, and, and, but again, it, it kind of worked in that situation. So, so in a real army, you have to have a reason for going in and, and, and killing people in, in Belagarth. You're not, there's no such thing as conscription. There's no such thing. The reason is you're here because you want to be here. You want to be here. And so if you're in a, a part of a unit, uh, chances are you're there because you wanted to be a part of the unit. So what makes people want to be a part of a unit? What makes a unit work? Well, that's that's being a part of a united purpose. I know that for us, the Dark Angels, um, our united purpose is not just having a strong field presence, which is really important to us, but also taking care of one another, really exemplifying what people say when they think of a family outside of a family. Like those are really big things for being a Dark Angel. So if you if you're just a good fighter but you're kind of a not great person, we're not going to be looking at you because we're looking at people that we're going to trust our kids around. We're old at this point. Most of the dark angels are above 30 at this point. So most of us have kids or or want to bring our our younger cousins or siblings to these things. And so we don't want to be partying with somebody who is sketchy. You know what I'm saying? So that's a huge part of our united purpose. That's a big thing in Gulf Camp since it's such a public hangout area. We have to make sure it's not... A creepy public right. hangout. Right, it needs to be a safe area. place for people. Sure. Yeah. Because that's a huge part of your draw. Uh, with new units, when people are like, oh, well, I'd like to start a new unit. What do you think? And like, first thing you need is a theme. Right. It can be, we're monsters, we're church knights, we're big fighters, we're big partiers. It doesn't matter what your theme is. You need a reason for people to be there. What's your, what's your uh, byword or what's your, uh, your catchphrase? Yeah. So to speak. Um, and, and yeah, that's absolutely huge. Um, and, and this one doesn't so much apply to Warhammer 40k, I don't think, because again, you're, you're the one in charge, so you're kind of running things. I suppose if you're running a guard army, um, having commissars <laughs> is a great way to keep people in line. Same thing with orcs. You got your, uh, break and eds to, to keep your boys from running, but it doesn't, there's, there's. I mean, there's also teams. I'm not a part of a, a huge team yet. Or, uh, that's presumptuous of me to say yet. Um, <laughs> I'm not a part of a huge team in in Warhammer 40k, but there are teams, and they follow along these same lines. Uh, they'll do things around the, the idea of themes. They'll do things around the idea of filling specific roles or specific slots on the team, but the team itself has a purpose. Mm-hmm. The team itself has an idea of what it's going for, like we were just talking about with the units. And so this is important for keeping people organized on the field, too, because if you are of one mind and one spirit as the person who's standing next to you, because the night before, you had a really deep conversation around the fireplace, and, and now you actually want to protect that person. Now they mean something to you. Mm-hmm. If you've got a super divisive camp life, and, and people aren't liking each other and they're not vibing, they're not going to vibe on the field either. Yeah. 
He just made an explosion. Oh, sorry. Cool explosion with his hands. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's 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 waiting to fall apart. It's waiting to implode. Yeah. Um, so holding officers, which is to say your leaders and the people in united purpose, everybody's on the same page. This is a key to victory. Um, the f- for something like Belagarth, or I'm assuming Warhammer 40k, since it's a hobby as opposed to a uh, life or death situation. Sure. One thing I've noticed as having running run several things now is if you can keep a relaxed attitude as a leader, as you can be aware that that like this is a hobby, it's going to work much better than say a drill sergeant in a right. lot of cases. There's a time and a place for the drill sergeant, and it's on the field. Yeah. Nobody wants a drill sergeant in camp because they're on vacation. You know, uh, nobody wants to be being screamed at in camp. Again, on the field, you need to be able to be heard over the din of battle and over the sound of the weapons and all that. So a little bit of the harsh voice, the drill sergeant voice comes out. But, you know, you're absolutely right. The best leaders in Belagarth attract with honey, not vinegar. Mm. Um, It it just works well everywhere. But especially in a place where, again, people don't have to be there. They're not being paid to be there. It's not like a job. They're being there because they want to be there. Right. So uh, that's huge. Holding people together, um, one of the keys to victory. Careful preparation to catch the enemy unprepared would be the fourth key to victory. So in this, the careful preparation comes in a couple of different ways. The first one is physical. I notice a huge difference uh, in Belagarth between the people who practice off-field and people who just practice uh, at Sunday practice. I'm super guilty of the second one for the most part. Which is to say that you are the exception that proves that. Um, <laughs> no, it shows. Trust because, me. Because most of the good fighters I know, most of the great fighters I know, have some sort of home workout routine. They, they do a, a shot uh, form, either with a Pell or with shadow boxing, which is to say just doing the forms without a resistance. Um, they have a workout routine of some sort. A lot of them will, will adopt some sort of eating regimen, either even, to make sure that they're on their top physical fitness. They're being athletes. They're being athletes. Really what it is. Absolutely. So that's, that's a way to be prepared because most of the people coming into this aren't. Most people coming into this are, are especially new people, are usually thinking it's a LARP. They're not thinking it's going to be sport swords. Or they'll come in being like, oh, it's a nerd game. I'll do great. And then go, oh, no. I get that all the time with the high schoolers. Like, we'll have jocks coming by, people who are on, like, the football or the basketball team, and they'll be like, oh, I'm going to give this a try, turn to their friends. Ha, 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 look at these nerds. And then they come out for five minutes and they're like, whoa, um, I got a thing that I got to get to. You know, and I'll give them credit if for some reason I suddenly was playing football with them, I would have the exact same, like, oh, oh, God, no. But... Yeah, if one of those guys decided to tackle me in the hallway, that'd be done, man. I would do that. that would be the rest of my day. I had a new guy once that was uh, getting really mad at me. Mm-hmm. Like, why, 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 why can't I beat you? And I'm like, okay, so first of all, you're 18. I've been playing this game since you were three years old. Right. Experience. Longevity. And like, second of all, I, I've been doing this forever. What's something else you play? You said baseball, and I said, man, if I tried to play baseball with you, I would have no chance whatsoever. Right. I wouldn't even know what was happening. Right. The same thing is happening here. Yep. No, and that's exactly it. So, um, yeah, so that preparation, um, that's really to give vets an advantage over vets because even just being in the sport for a long time, even just learning what shots work and what shots don't, yeah, even just failing 10,000 times and doing no real training outside of it, we are learning creatures. We will eventually learn how to fight just through process of trial and error. That, that coming to it super prepared, that gives an advantage of vets over other vets. Okay, you know the same shots I do, you know the same thing about foot placement that I do, but I do 30 minutes of cardio a day. 
Yeah. Which means that at the end of the... I, I, that's not an actual I. I don't do 30 minutes of cardio. I work day, an eight-hour shift moving boxes for the day and then get to practice, and I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. But that's you. Like, you don't work a desk job, though. Like, you're still moving boxes and stuff. You still have a very physical job. Yeah, it's true. I do move about 3,000 pounds a day. Yeah, so you're going to have a little bit of an advantage. And even if it's just a hair, even if it's just a half a second, that's enough to win sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, so that physical fitness is a huge part of coming prepared um, and catching your enemy unprepared. Another thing is the research. Um, looking up sword forms, looking up how people did it in the past. This is one of my favorite ways is to go back, look at ancient battles, and look at ancient fighting techniques and say, okay, headshots excluded, how can I apply this to Belagarth? Because let's be honest, about 50% of every sword fighting form is headshot, sideways headshot, other sideways headshot, Diagonal headshot. That's why kendo people have such a really <laughs> steep learning curve early on. Of like, please stop doing you this. You always know them too. They whack you right in the middle of the forehead. It's beautiful. Right on that bony oh, ridge. It's perfect home. shot. It's like, well, sorry, bud. Um, that would have nailed me, but we don't do that here. And now I'm kind of mad at you because I wasn't mad. expecting a headshot. That's right. Um, but that is, So doing the, that research and treating it like a martial art and, and researching it and practicing it like a martial art, that gives you an edge over other people. Studying your opposition gives you an advantage over other people. One of my favorite things to do, and one of the things I do before every fight that I go to, whether it's a national event or just a home practice, is I'll sit on the side of the field and just watch everybody else. Sparring, warming up, even doing their their opening games. And I'm, I'm watching. I'm watching to see who's on point today. Who is moving a little slow, maybe a little hungover. Who is more distracted with their girlfriend or boyfriend on the side of the field? Like, all these things kind of play into somebody's headspace and somebody's field presence and how they're going to perform. And then watching what kind of shots they like to throw, what foot they favor. All these things can lead to a, a greater abundance of knowledge, especially if your opponent doesn't know those things about you. If I've been watching somebody, a stranger, warm up, and then I spar against them, and they don't know me from Adam, I'm going to have just a little bit of an advantage in that particular way. Again, if they're an amazing fighter and I'm a, I'm a doofus, uh, there's only so much some, an uninitiated person can do with knowledge. But if you know what to do with the knowledge, it can be very effective. Oh, yeah. Um, and then also knowing units, knowing how a unit typically fights, whether they're a, a high-mobility unit, a shield wall kind of unit, a little bit of both, those things can help you in fighting not only the unit itself, but the individual members of said unit, because as we said, units are a little typecast, you know, they tend to look for a similar kind of personality, a similar kind of person to be in there. Um, so yeah, the preparation can be huge, and knowledge is a huge part of that preparation. The final key to victory that Sun Tzu mentions is a skillful general given free reign by the ruler, which is to say that you don't have a ruler who's sitting there micromanaging from a civilian perspective what the general is doing militarily. And, and this is because a civilian doesn't necessarily understand the nuances of a military strategy, doesn't necessarily understand when to attack, when to retreat, when to feign, either of those things. And so what Sun Tzu is saying here is that you need to be, um, that the general needs to be in charge. When I think the metaphor that we can apply for Belagarth and 40k is that you need to be there in that moment. Whatever you need to do, whatever, whatever pre-battle or pre-match ritual gets you there. For me, it's music. I'll put on Fin Troll or, uh, don't judge me, K-pop, and it, it'll motivate me <clears throat> to, to, and get my blood up. Yep, and, I used to listen all the time yep. while walking to work. I would just, or not walking to work, walking to practice, would mm-hmm. put on my iPod and whatever peppy song got my blood moving. 
And so, and that gives you, and, and, and then when you're there at the field, I typically will just put my phone, unless there's some sort of family emergency that might happen or, or some reason that I need to be in touch with people, I'll typically just turn my phone off. And, and I'm not even paying attention to the outside world because if, you're, if your mind is full of, quote-unquote, civilian obligations, <laughs> if you're thinking about all that other stuff, your mind isn't there. You're not the skillful general being given free reign. You're a skillful general who is being uh, yoked by the state mentally, and your mind is elsewhere. So don't think about that stuff. Don't think about real life. Let's, let's just use that as a comparison for the state. Don't think about that. You got to think about the battle. You got to think about the war. Yeah, worry so, about groceries afterwards. That's right. <laughs> worry about the groceries or who's doing dishes afterwards. So the five keys to victory: knowing when to fight and when not to, knowing what to do with superior and inferior numbers, holding officers and men in united purpose, careful preparation to catch the enemy unprepared, and a skillful general given free reign by the ruler. These are the five keys to victory. So the battle that I want to use to kind of illustrate these principles today is the Battle of Red Cliff. A lot of you guys uh, might know that from the romancing... Oh my gosh, I forgot the rest of it, what it's called. It's about the Three Kingdoms period in China. Um, and it's, Romance it's, era or something like that? No, it's, it's a, there was an actual novel that was written about it, like Romancing the Stone or Romancing the Ring or something like that, that, that dealt specifically with this um, uh, the, the a game I play, Dynasty Warriors, is kind of based off that book series, but I've I've never actually read it, obviously. Um, but I have done research on my absolute favorite general in probably the history. I've talked to him on before on the show, Shu Goliang. Oh, I have heard you mention it. Uh, I love this guy. He he was the he's the like if you're thinking about outthinking the enemy, if if you want to win without fighting, you gotta study Shu Goliang because the guy was just amazing at coming up with these these strategies that turned the tides in his favor completely. And the Battle of Red Cliff is a good example of this. So, uh, Thumbs is coming into this without knowing anything. I tried to give him a lecture on the Battle of Red Cliff before the episode. He said, no, we'll save it for the episode because he doesn't know much about this, this particular uh, battle, so he can learn about it with y'all. I figured I could ask questions a little better this way. So, before I go into the battle, are there any framing questions you'd like to ask? Uh, where roughly in history is this? I know you said ancient China, but... So, we're talking about the Three Kingdoms period, which is, I think, roughly 500 to 300 BC. Okay, so um, Persia-Greece yep, era. Yep. Never never coming close to meeting each other, but... Well, actually, Persia. no, they were. They were, like, all all like we, they, all these cultures were far more in contact than we think they were. That's true. Um, like, for instance, one of the best examples of this is they found... Phoenician artifacts in northern Britain. The Phoenicians that's a, before that. That's a little bit of a distance. They were they were like, this is a Mediterranean culture. And then they were like, whoa! <laughs> they've got these in northern Britain. So that means one of either two things. That means either the Phoenicians were trading themselves as far north as northern Britain, or their goods were being traded along trade routes to northern Britain. Which is about the same thing when you're talking about cultural influence. They found lapis lazuli in ancient Britain too, yep. which is, that's yep. 3,000 years ago. Yeah. Holy <laughs> and that's, Jesus. And, and lapis lazuli, if, for those of you who don't know, that's, that's an India thing. That grows, or is found in India. Yeah, it was from, a, they think they traced it to like a mine in Afghanistan. Yep. It was so cool. Sorry, Anyways, to the yep. point of what we're talking about, they, they at very least had very little interaction with each other. Right. But, so we're talking ancient China. Uh, three Kingdoms period, so anybody who's familiar with uh, the Dynasty Warriors or Romancing series, 
um, th- this would have been the, the period of time when you had the three states, uh, Wei, Shu, and Wu, in China. Is and this still Iron Age, Bronze Age? You know, I oh, definitely Iron. It must uh, be. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because they had some very advanced weaponry at that time. At least. Uh, cool. Sorry, I don't know China very well. <laughs> I love China. It's one of my favorite fields of study. Um, but and so this this occurred, and this was a battle that took place between the northern uh, state of Wei and the south, uh, kind of western state of Shu, and. Shugo Liang was an advisor to the uh, the Lord of, of Shu, but he basically ran the, the military operations of the time. Wei was a lot bigger. Like, Xiao Xiao, uh, the, the commander who had made Wei what it was, um, had been campaigning for years at this point, had eaten up large swaths of territory, and was now gunning for the south. Um, the combined forces of Wu and Shu were worried, because neither of them individually could oppose the, the forces of Wei. Uh, the really important thing was to keep them from crossing the river. There was, there was a large river that ran through the middle of this section. I'm, I'm fairly certain it was the Yangtze. I'm, I might have to correct myself next episode if I'm wrong. Um, but anybody who knows anything about the rivers in that area, they are massive, and they take quite a bit of effort to cross. This isn't a simple fording like we get here in the West. Mm-hmm. We're talking mountain-moving rivers. Um, so they had to get across that first. So, um, there was a, a, the cat is freaking out over here. He, in true form, he has to interrupt my episode. (laughs) Um, but, but, uh, backtracking a little bit. Um, so Shugali Yang knew they couldn't do a front on assault. This was a, a situation where they were either heavily or slightly outnumbered. So they had to play their odds a little bit more differently. They also were lacking on raw materials. They had been fighting for a fairly long time at this point and way just had way more in, in terms of the materials to make war. Um, so before this battle of Redcliffe, Shugali Yang is credited with doing something truly brilliant. What he did was he got a bunch of boats and stuffed them full of straw, and then manned them with men stuffed with straw. So you had a bunch of scarecrows on a straw boat. Giant decoy fleet. Giant decoy fleet, but for a specific purpose. He sailed these across the river, straight at the way forces. There was a heavy fog at the particular time, and he had his men on the other side of the river bang their drums. So they started playing their war horns and playing their war drums, started shouting out orders and all this, and all the people on the other side see are these ships coming looming out of the mist at them. So, as is typical tactical fashion at the time, the archers line up and open fire, and tens of thousands of arrows come flying into the air and strike these vessels, which then turn around and take their arrows right back to the other side of the river. Oh, he was stealing their arrows? He was stealing oh their arrows. Oh my god, arrows. that's so much... I thought they were just making them waste it, but this is nope. so much better. Steal, so they get those <laughs> arrows. So they've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of arrows at this point that they now have just harvested from Wei. Um, and, and Wei is getting aggravated at this point, but the, the, the troops of Wei were kind of, they, they were, they were plentiful, but they were malnourished and they were exhausted from the, the long marches that they were having to go on for the length of this campaign mm-hmm. that Xiao Xiao was running. Um, and so one of the things they did was they, they lashed the boats together. And there's a couple of different mythological things that are accredited for this. There's a, a myth or a story that one of the, um, Shu generals went over and delivered some highly potent liquor to the enemy troops, got them super, super drunk, and then that made them queasy on the boats the next day, which had them lash it together. There were also storms at that time that would have made it 
sparter to lash boots together so that they get more across. Um, there were a lot of reasons for doing this. What they didn't expect was the fire attack. I love isn't that just you just say fire attack and you're like oh. So what happened? They're coming across with their lash boats, and one of the ooh generals had decided to defect. Air quotes. Mm-hmm. He made this big show about getting beat up by one of the uh, one of the generals by saying around uh, one of the spies, "I can't take it no more." Oh, they're disrespecting I, me. Yeah, blah 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 blah. I'm gonna go over to Shao Shao. He knows how to treat his soldiers, and so he was one of the first ones to leave the banks and was going over with his fleet of ships that were packed full of kindling and oil, and sailed right into Shao Shao's fleet, and boom. Yeah. And then fire arrows coming on top of that. So, the... In the age of wooden ships, fire is about the most useful thing you could ever do. Exactly. So this this was a brilliant attack. Using the enemy's own weapons against them, which oh, I right, think... it's their arrows. <laughs> it's their arrows. Um, and... It's something that uh, it, it crippled Xiao Xiao's ability to continue that campaign. Was that was the big thing about this battle? It, it wasn't about destroying the forces of Xiao Xiao. It wasn't about invading Wei. It was about stopping Xiao Xiao's ability to continue his campaign in the south, which they did mm-hmm. with with his fleet effectively destroyed after this attack. Xiao Xiao had no uh, other recourse than to return to what he was doing and suspend his campaign, which allowed Shu and Wu to get more powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that's that's the, the Spark Notes version of the Battle of Redcliffe. There's been movies made about it, books written about it. it it's one of Shu Liang's absolute best moments as a commander. I can see how it'd be pretty famous. It's got all the all the good moments for a legend. Oh, yeah. Nice little twist, a little bit of betrayal, you know, the good stuff. Uh, do you have any questions about it? Um... I know I just sort of blew through. <laughs> so I guess kind of what happened after. How did Shugo well, Liang end up doing? I don't know anything about him. Well, obviously Shugo Liang ended up dying. Uh, the Three well, States period con- continued for actually a fairly long time in a, in a fairly stable fashion. Uh, Shu, which is what Shugo, who Shugo Liang worked for, um, expanded their territory and, and became fairly successful. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there was, there was a lot of backstabbing and, 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 and all over the place, but eventually things kind of settled down and, and a relative peace returned. Uh, the, the immediate aftermath of this battle saw Xiao Xiao's forces routed. Uh, there was a force deposited on that side of the river that when Xiao Xiao tried to reposition, he ran right into an ambush. Oh, yeah. And so there was a, a twofold, there was the, the Navy hit and then the Army hit. That, that really just crippled his ability to make war on the scale that he needed to. Yeah, back then, it, one good loss would end the entire war for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, even now, it can't. That's true. I mean, you know, in, in the Civil War, it happened too. Um, Lee won time after time after time after time after time, but he lost the war because he just didn't have the numbers to, to continue through with the campaign that he needed to do. So, the Battle of Redcliffe, I think, really illustrates this idea of outthinking the enemy. You know, by feigning an attack the first time, getting the enemy to waste arrows, gaining arrows, and then uh, using a fake defection to start this fire attack, Shugo Liang thought circles around. Now, Xiao Xiao wasn't a, a, a pushover. He was a great general of his own right, a very good tactician in his own right. So the fact that Shugo Liang could kind of maneuver him into this position speaks to Shugo Liang's own mastery 
of the battlefield. Oh, yeah. Um, and he absolutely knew when to fight and when not to, when to use those superior numbers and when to use those inferior numbers. He held his officers and his men in a united position. They all knew what they were up to. The careful preparation, and they caught their enemy unprepared, and then he was given free reign by Lou Bay to do what he needed to do to win that war. He had all those factors right in place, right there. Just walk through because of it. Yep. So, um, in this same idea, I want to use my recent four Warhammer 40k game. Uh, I just kind of use that as an example as well for Hit something. Um, I recently went against my friend Kaji, my apprentice Kaji, and uh, he was using a combination of Imperial Guard. Uh, he was doing catacans for anybody who's interested, and uh, Grey Knights. About even numbers of points of both. Um, I was using orcs. And my orc force cons- uh, constituted, um, the way it looked on the board first round, I had four models. Any orc player is going to be shaking their heads right now and be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not possible. You had four models and you were playing a 2,000 point orc army. How is that possible? I had one stompa. I'm sorry, I had five models because I had four trucks. So one stompa with a bunch of dudes inside. And then four trucks with a bunch of dudes inside. Yeah. And some uh, def coptas in deep strike. And so my whole plan was just a complete blitz, hit him where he was weak, and exploit those and get as many points as I could early on. And that's exactly what I did. If anybody's ever played a Stompa, they know the sheer destructive power of the one good gun in the orc army, the death cannon. Um, I was I was popping him with his Lehman Ruses left and right. Um, and so his heavy firepower, I got first turn for anybody who... who uh, Going first is actually is pretty big for, mm-hmm. because it means you get to shoot first. Um, and so I was able to take down one of his big tanks first round. Uh, and then I took down her tank every single round after that with my Stompa. Uh, by the time his Grey Knights hit the field and were able to be effective, I had effectively decimated his entire guard force. So that was his three tanks, the one Basilisk, and then the several forces of infantry that he had to protect them. Now, when his... Uh, Grey Knights hit the field, deep striking at the end of turn two. That was a game changer. After my Stompa died, I didn't have anything that could touch those Grey Knights. The Grey Knights, uh, for anybody who hasn't necessarily played against them, they do a lot of um, uh, Terminators, and their Paladins, which are Terminators, have three wounds instead of just two, and they are all Psychers. Every Grey Knight is a Psyker, so you have this entire army of Battle Wizards uh, dropping in out of space, and my Orcs are just they're just, they're just not on that level. And so I changed my tactics. So at first, when I knew that I could overpower the guard, I came in strong. I came in shooting. I poured over him with all of my boys. But once those gray knights hit the field, I hightailed it out of there. I knew that I was not going to be in a position to win if I continued my attack. So I changed my my idea. I went into the backfield and I held objectives because he was slow and couldn't catch me. Because I I still had my def coptas and all my trucks at this point. So I pulled them out. And I just held objectives and ran circles around him until the end of the game. Yeah. If I had just gone in and fight him, fought him... You would have lost. I likely would have lost. Um, and so what I did throughout this entire thing was when I had the 5-to-1 advantage, I absolutely attacked. Once I got heavily outnumbered, especially heavily outskilled, I withdrew completely and kind of let him exhaust himself. Uh, kind of floundered around. Floundered around, because he didn't have the, the ability to come and get... Like, he, he could teleport. Like, he had a, a, a psychic ability that allowed him to teleport and come after me. But he could only do it once. And there's no guarantee he'd get his charge. Yeah. Because a nine-inch charge is a long, it's a long charge. Um, so, by doing this, I was able to kind of manipulate the battlefield at different times in order to secure my victory. It was kind of the idea there. 
Um, and that goes that goes toward uh, we, we want to do a little bit of a, a chat now uh, on some of these ideas. And one of the things I want to talk to you about thumbs is outthinking the paradigm, outthinking the way that things are done because people practice things in a certain way. And even right now, there are certain trends in Balagarth that have established themselves as the main trends, the main things to do, the main shots to throw. Um, but outthinking the paradigm means thinking ahead of that. It's why I recommend to so many because we're so remote here. It's super easy to have trouble getting people to go to bigger events, but it's right. why I'm like, you still need to do this because you need to learn other stuff than what we're teaching you. Right. And, 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 and the more you travel, the more you see of other people, the more you see the, how they fight, the more, not only can you learn how they fight, but you can learn how to fight against it. I, I'll say that I was not nearly as good at fighting against lines or fighting in a line before I went and lived in Tennessee for a year. Yeah, uh, I hated spears, so I got one. Yep. And it is actually now my favorite weapon, but... I feel the same way about reds, even though I can't use them. <laughs> but they're like my favorite weapon that I swore that I would never end up getting good with. Um, so, I, But I'm thinking the paradigm also works in field tactics, too. If, if you're noticing that everybody is relying on heavily mobile tactics, then maybe focusing on uh, tactics that capitalize on that, so that draw a heavily mobile force... Pin them. Pin them, um, take away their mobility, or draw them out, which is to say that, like, if you can make your enemy chase you and get distant from one another. This was, there was a Roroni Kenshin episode, actually, that made me think <laughs> I haven't thought about that show in years. But there's, there's that episode where he's, he's got that whole group of guys against him. There's, like, ten dudes coming after this one swordsman. And what he does is he just sprints away. And the guardsmen, because they all have different speeds at which they run kind of spread out as they're running. Mm -hmm. So all he has to do is wait for one of them to get ahead of the pack, turn around, defeat that dude, and then start running again, rinse and repeat. Yeah, if I'm one versus five, six people, we talked about this a little bit, uh, I am never just engaging. I'm trying to hold, and eventually someone will make a mistake, and they'll step too far out, and I can leg them or arm them or do something, and yeah. Or if you're going against a unit that you know uses a lot of flanking, that that's like their main thing, then perhaps redistributing your own people so that when you present your counterflank, you actually are making them get into a line fight. Because if there's one thing skirmishers hate, like you've been we, saying... We really hate line fights. So if you're a line fighter, try to force that line fight. See where those line fight or those skirmishers are going and try to intercept them so that they have to come through you and you force that line fight and suddenly you're on your terms. Mm-hmm. Outthinking the paradigm. Um... The other thing I kind of want to touch on is is we've talked a lot about preparation and outthinking the enemy and this winning without fighting and how that's all based in knowledge. All the preparation in the world cannot actually account for the chaos of battle. Real battle is absolute madness, but even fake battle, even play battle, you never actually know what your opponent is going to do. You can have a pretty good idea. You can run the numbers, you can have some statistics in your head. But they're still people. People st- do the weirdest crap. They can do something you don't expect. Stuff. Um, it's the same thing in 40k. You might really think you know how that Eldar army is going to work, and they might surprise you with something that you weren't expecting. And so uh, what I want to talk about real quick is the limits of preparation, or, or something I call the MacArthur Principle. Um, MacArthur said once that every plan is perfect until it meets the enemy. Um I think that that is absolutely true. And oh, yeah. One of the reasons that I think that that KISS is so important. you got to keep it simple. 
Um, you you got to make sure that any orders that are given are clearly understood and have room for flexibility because no plan is going to survive encounter with the enemy, uh, no matter how perfect the plan is. Yeah, we'll sometimes have newer people come up and be like, well, why didn't you do this thing you said you were going to do? I'm like, well, I meant to stab that guy, but then three other people came running up on me, so I kind of had to adapt. Right. You couldn't follow through with the exact plan because it wouldn't. the, the, the situation changed. Um, and that happens all throughout battle. So, so having some form of flexibility, having, having an, an idea for contingencies, these are absolutely important too. Code this, words are nice. Code words are nice. Um, even just simple battle cant that everybody is familiar with. Um, Same thing. Move, 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 fall back. Um, Form up on yep. whoever. Um, you're getting hit, like any of those simple things that really, as long as your team is practicing together, and this is one of the reasons why I like fighting with Stygians when we go other else, other like to other places. I wouldn't say that we practice necessarily like drills or anything as a realm, but because we fight with each other almost exclusively, and we're always switching teams back and forth during the yeah, I know fight. what you're gonna do. I can guess with roughly any Stygian that guy from Idaho. I'm sure you're lovely. I'm sure you're great, but I don't know what to do with you. Right. You haven't been watching them for the last, you know, 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's one of those, it's one of those things where that, that familiarity uh, brings with it the ability to do those contingencies. If somebody is standing near me and they know that I'm the type that if I see the numbers against me on a side that I'm going to start running, that means if I start running, you should probably start running too, because that side is lost. I don't. I don't just abandon a position because it's convenient for me. I abandon a position because there's no point in me being there anymore. Yeah. So that would be something that you, as somebody who knows me, would know. I would know about you that when you're pushing really heavy in a place, you're expecting support, and if you have support, you're going to be able to do a lot of damage with whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. So it's best for me to support you when I see you doing exactly what I know that you're going to end up doing there. And that's why I like that you're arching these days because. Both of our things can still work. That's right. That's right. You can still read people, and and but so so make sure that if you're if you're the planning type, because when I first started this, I enjoyed really really complex plans. <laughs> I enjoyed getting people together in a specific formation because we used to drill at gladiators. We're gonna we're gonna do an arrowhead formation, and then this side will swing out, and this guys will do this way, and and everything will work perfectly, and it actually kind of worked. But the biggest problem with those kind of plans are um, this is a hobby. Right. Well, And the other issue was that I couldn't always predict what the enemy was going to do. Again, uh, the the gladiators did amazingly against the, the Urukai uh, because of that organization. But uh, the other part of it was once the Urukai and other teams started to figure out that the gladiators were a fixed entity, that they were only reacting to orders, they began doing things that couldn't be anticipated quickly. Uh, WUG has been doing a really good job lately of taking all the new people and giving them very specific instructions, because he's a spearman mostly, uh, and getting a couple of people with shields and telling them what he needs them to do, and it's great, and they're doing really well. It's super, it's it's wonderful to watch. But I also know if I can kill WUG, the rest of the group will fall apart. Right. Immediately. I, I always aim for the loudest person on the other team. If I'm looking across at the other team and there's somebody sitting there shouting orders... You're getting an arrow in the mouth, because uh, yeah, I'm like that. Oh and man, and Stygia, like a quarter of our field right now is archers, so they're everywhere. Probably a good thing I haven't been able to come out for a while. You don't need one more. <laughs> it's great. I love it. I'm getting so much better at dodging arrows. That's good but, training. Yeah. 
No, and, and that's the thing. Uh, if you're on a red heavy field, don't worry. You get better at fighting reds. If you're on a sword and board heavy field, you're going to get real good at fighting sword and board. Uh, there's always training to be had. Um, so before we break today, I just want to ask you, you got any events coming up? Um, Stygia's events are pretty much done for the year. I'm not sure when I'm next going. It might not be until War of the Gate, uh, which is in June. Um, I'm getting married next year, so it's kind of eating up all of my personal yeah, time. Yeah, that was this year for me. I yeah. Figured. Okay. Um, well, again, best of luck to you in the election and to Hakan and Mud. May the, the best uh, monster win? Mid- sure. I don't know if Mud's a monster. Sorry if I just uh, uh, was derogatory to you, sir. Mr. Person. Um, <laughs> thank you guys again for tuning in to The Art of War Gaming. Uh, this was Strategic Offense. Uh, tune in next week when we discuss... Finding the chapter now. Next week we are going to be discussing... Deployment. Actually, this is one of my favorite chapters. I can't believe I forgot that. So, tune in next week for Deployment. Uh, hopefully, Oni will be back with us, but thank you again, Thumbs. Oh, no problem. Uh, for was coming fun. on. And uh, we'll hopefully have you on again. So, uh, this was the Nightmare Box Presents The Art of Wargaming, signing off.